Would you join with me in prayer? Dear Lord, I thank you so much that it's never just us coming to a situation. It's always us with you with us. So I pray, Lord, help us to acknowledge that. Help us to seek that. Help us to, to live in that. Fill us with your Holy Spirit now. Help us to be open up to you even as we open your word up to us. And I pray, Lord, shore up our weakness and our limitations with your wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. You've heard me say this roughly a gazillion times uh, over the years. This place is not our home. This, this is not where we're from anymore. This isn't where our citizenship is. We're ambassadors of a deeper, better kingdom. I say that, and you might nod and go, yep, 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 yep. But think about how the world thinks, and then think about what Scripture says about what we're supposed to think, and realize the gap is widening. I mean, think about, think about what the Bible says about healthy sexuality, and then think about what the world says that perverts that and thinks, yeah, that's cool. Think about what the Bible says about foul, obscene language and humor, and then think about what the world says about that and how that's embraced and encouraged. Think about what the Bible says about put-up-withness, and then think about what the world preaches about how sinners don't deserve grace. Bear in mind, they don't use words like sinners and grace. But if you screw up once, we hate you forever, right? The world says that we should hate our enemies. The world says that we should hate those who hate us. If they're haters, we should hate them. The world says that we should curse those who curse us. The world says that we should, we should shout down or cancel anyone that would mistreat us or mistreat people around us. Even once, we should. That, that's it. That's enough. But as I recall, Jesus said that you should love your enemies, that you should do good to those who hate you, that you should... Bless those who curse you, that you should pray for those who mistreat you. It's the exact opposite of what the world says. And when I say that, it's not even that the world disagrees with Scripture. It's, it's that the world is increasingly preaching the exact opposite of the Bible and preaching it with an ever-increasing volume and an ever-increasing vehemence and an ever-increasing demand that everyone else accepts their gospel of do as thou wilt. It's not just that they want to be able to do it. You have to tell them they're being moral in doing it. An evangelism of evil, disangelism, if you were. And to a degree, an increasing degree, that they would be horribly offended if Christians used in our evangelism to them. It's not enough that they believe their own ideas on sexuality. Everyone has to accept and believe those doctrines and affirm those doctrines. You can't even get through a primetime Super Bowl halftime show without being having a foul obscenity thrust in your face. I'm not even being doom and gloom. That's denotative, not even connotative. It is the definition of obscenity. But we're getting so used to it that we go, no, it's sex positiveness increasingly we're supposed to think oh they're reveling in 
what I'm doing here is literally satanic. Enjoy. It's my comment against religion. It's not enough that they should be allowed to speak with foul language and do the occasional coarse joke. It's expected. If a comedian doesn't do that, what are they, some kind of weird Christian comedian? You have to be in a clean comedy tour. Because otherwise, of course you're going to be talking foul things. Of course you are. It's expected in Marvel movies. When was the last Marvel movie that came out that didn't include a rather intense four-letter word? Wasn't that a joke in one Marvel movie? That there was a character who didn't speak like that, and so everybody made fun of him until by the end of the movie, he did utter a foul four-letter word. And then they went, okay, now you're cool. It might seem like a little thing, but isn't that the exact opposite of what the world is saying? Is the exact opposite of what the Bible is saying? It's not enough that somebody says, I get to be vitriolic. You need to affirm that I get to be vitriolic. I should attack this person. Any moral person would be outraged. In fact, how dare you judge me in that? How dare you tell me I'm wrong? How dare you defend my enemy by telling me I shouldn't hate them? Increasing, preaching that not only do I want to do what I want to do, but that you should affirm that I get to do what I want to do. The world has become puritanical in its hedonism. Absolute, unquestionable, absolute, I get to do what I want to do. And everybody needs to affirm that. It's no longer even pretending to be about open-mindedness. It's saying, I want to call evil good and good evil. And you have to too, or else you're the bad guy. I remember God preaching about this through Isaiah. Didn't he, didn't he say, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter? Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, clever in their own sight. Beloved, in this world, we are not the other side of a given sociopolitical issue. We are seen as the enemy. We're seen as the mission field that needs to be won over. But where we would see that, should see that, as a mission field that we want to reach with love, we're seen as that mission field that should be destroyed because we hate them. We need to make them us because we despise them. That's where we're sitting. we defend the unborn we're called fascists who hate women if we question various sexual issues we're said to be fearful phobic even unreasoning fearful if we base our lives on scripture we're said to be out of touch parochial even unlearned ignorance if if we even say that in any of this there is a culture war going on against us that we're being battled, that we're being attacked, we're told we can't be because we're the ones that hold all the power. Beloved, we've lost the cultural revolution. It's already happened, and we've lost it. We've absolutely lost it. 
But there's good news. Good news. Capital G, good news. There's gospel. That reminds us that is never the fight that we were supposed to have been fighting in the first place. If the point of being a Christian is to advance Christendom, if the point of being a Christian was to make sure that the world looks more Christian, we stink at it, right? In fact, books like Daniel and Revelation would tell us, yes, you're going to horribly stink at it because it's going to get much worse, right? If the point is to make the world look more Christian, we are going to be abject failures as a church. The Bible says so. I don't think that's what Revelation is getting at. Because if I remember correctly, in Revelation we are overcomers. We're more than conquerors, aren't we? Because we overcome through our testimony. We win through the gospel, through being the gospel to those around us. Not by forcing a culture change but by being a spiritual change. And the second half of the book of Ephesians is really about the battle that we're supposed to be fighting and how to win that. If you haven't already done so, open up your Bibles to Ephesians because we want to pick up where we left off in Ephesians 4.17. But up to this point, we've been talking about all this stuff and it's all been incredibly uplifting and it still should be uplifting. But Paul starts to get at something today where he's like, but there's a reason why I've been going into this. Ephesians 4, verse 17. So, and I have to stop there. Because you don't start a sentence with so unless you're going to be building off of something you just said, right? So what is it that he just said that leads up to this so? Verse 11, he says, Christ gave some to be apostles, sent to the nations, some to be prophets, breathing the very words of God, some to be evangelists, sharing the good news, some to be pastors and teachers, shepherding and discipling and nurturing God's flock. And why? to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Until we all get there. And even Paul elsewhere says, I haven't gotten there yet. I don't claim to be perfect. I ain't got there. But we're going to do this until we all get there. If Paul never got there, at least by the time he was writing, I'm pretty sure 92% of you guys haven't either. I know I haven't gotten there. But the whole point of all these roles in the church has nothing to do with the hierarchies and power structures that the world would try to make of them, that, that too many Christians emulate the world in making of them. The whole point of all these roles is to prepare all of us to do God's work, all of us to be ministers of the gospel, all of us, then, then we're no longer be, going to be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming, all the different ways the world tries to pervert God's capital T truth. All those ways that they say, no, I want you to affirm this. Instead, speaking the truth in love, Paul says, we're going to in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I love the consistency of this. Everybody, all, all together. We're doing this together. We're in unity. We're all doing this. All of this is so that all of us can grow in unity, all together and connect. And you go, I'll just watch. No, 
You can't get through this section without hearing him go, all, all, every, 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 connected, 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 all of us together, unity, that's what we're doing. And that's our context. So I tell you this, he says, given all that, given that all of us in genuine unity are moving forward in that first half of the book, all that is so that we can take our stand together in the second half of the book. So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, because Paul says it's not enough that I go, this is a good argument. I have to clarify, with Christ's authority and lordship, I am commanding this. I'm not going, hey, think about this. Here's an idea. You know what I think is a good idea? In Christ's lordship, I am insisting, I'm commanding that you do this. I tell you, I insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and they're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Don't do what they do. They do the antithesis of what the Bible is saying. They're genuinely, ignorantly wrong and they're getting wronger with every passing day. And I don't say that judgmentally because that's where I came from. That's where you came from. That's what our lives can too easily reflect even now in the day-to-day if we're not careful. It's not that I'm so much, you're so much better than the non-Christian sitting around you. In fact, in some ways, your life must, might be much worse than the non-Christian sitting there. The non-Christian goes, I ain't hypocritical in nothing. I don't know. It's not that I'm so much better, but that I have... Holy Spirit in me that's trying to work in me. This place is broken, but I am at least trying to fix it with with the repair manual. I'm at least in talks. I've got an email out every day to the manufacturer. I'm trying in God's grace and in God's strength to fix, not to fix this world, because that's God's job, but I'm trying to fight for those broken people still lost in this broken world. So I tell you this, I insist on the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. It's futile, it's pointless, it's empty, it's self-referential and not in a good way. Every empty choice just leads to a deeper hole in life. It's like heroin. The more you take, the more you need it, the more you need it, the more you take until it devours your entire life. Don't fight against those people. Fight to save those people. Those broken, hurting people. You go, she came and she kicked me in the shins. How broken must she be to just do that? Did you do anything to instigate that? No. Then she's really messed up. Let's pray for her. Not maliciously. Let's reach out to her. She must be really hurting. Back up. Did you do anything to, 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 to predicate that? Yeah. Well, stop that. Don't be part of the problem. Be part of the solution. Either way, she came and kicked me in the shins. Well, what's the proper reaction? To love this person better. They're darkened. They're darkened in their understanding. Separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And if you want to argue, well, they dug that hole themselves. They made their bed. They hardened their hearts. And then they hardened it more and more and more. Okay, you're not wrong they're still separated from the life of God. Even if they did it to themselves, doesn't your heart break for that? 
on a macro cosmological level at its core isn't that what hell is the separation from god and aren't they living in a kindergarten version of hell and they don't even realize it they think yeah this is normal this level of stress and emptiness and hate and fear and i i, I can't even well, that's normal not what you were created for children it's not what we were created for we were created to be more than conquerors it's not just bad choices here and there a missed opportunity here and there it's a paradigm that perpetuates itself like a virus in the bloodstream. It's a heroin addiction that makes you crave more poison. It's, he says, after having lost all sensitivity, they, they're completely numb to what they're doing. They've given themselves over to sensuality to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more because once you get inured to one thing, you have to take it farther once you once you push the envelope over here you have to push it farther to get the same high you have to keep doing it. you have to keep going further and further and further because this particular perversion now seems normal and if i'm into the perversion i have to take it a step further and then it feels normal so i have to take it a step further and it's constant and it's heartbreaking it's not just Stepping off the path that leads to righteousness. It's tumbling down the hill in the wrong direction and picking up steam and feeling more and more excited the farther down the hill they go. Because the farther off track you get, the less ability you have to see the track at all or to even recognize that there ever was a track. You lose that wisdom, that discernment. And, it's, and you like it. You like losing that discernment increasingly well until you finally hit the rocky bottom but what you you may not realize as you look at your bibles depending on what translation you have the first word in verse 20 is it is but but this world is tumbling down the hill this world is antithetical and it's liking it more and more and it's demanding that you like it but beloved you didn't come to know christ that way that's what the world does that's what the world thinks that the world believes but that is not your reality not anymore surely you heard of them and were taught of them in accordance to the truth the capital t truth that's in jesus their truth is futility it's emptiness that leads to emptiness your faith is real truth and they, they won't see that. That seems like foolishness to them. But don't ever let the world tell you different. The world will point to its flesh and say, look, it's real. I can see it. I can, I can touch it. That makes it real. You're an ambassador who should come along and say, actually, no. I want to point to my spirit and say, this is real. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. That's real. Because your flesh, my flesh, this wood, everything will pass away. 
I don't even need to go to Revelation. You scientists who understand entropy will understand it will pass away. It might take 100 years, it might take 1,000 years, but it will pass away. It'll break down. And what you feel tonight may feel very different in the light of day tomorrow. Perhaps that is not the way to make decisions about what you should do. My home, my kingdom, my reality is a much stronger thing, and it doesn't change tomorrow. It didn't change from yesterday, and it won't change tomorrow. And it's, it's perfect, so much better than I am, and so much deeper and realer than this shadow realm of matter that will pass away. So Paul says, change your clothes. I want you to change your clothes. You have to change your clothes. Christians, change your clothes. You're all wearing these old clothes. Sometimes we wear old clothes. You shouldn't wear any old clothes. But you're wearing old clothes from an old life that's antithetical to the new life that you've been given. Do not just twist the t-shirt around inside out and think you're good. Please don't do that. Please don't do that anyway. But please don't do that here. Don't just wear the same stuff that you wore when you lived a different existence. Or please don't just sew a new patch onto the old clothes. Don't do that. Don't keep trying to look in style with this place any longer. Don't do that. Especially when you see some of the styles that are coming out. Sure, you can apply that to clothing. I actually wasn't there. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. Take that off which is corrupted by its sinful desires, to be made new in the attitudes of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in capital T, truth and righteousness and holiness, that really, really, really in for true. Take off the old self. It's dirty and needs a wash. Actually, it needs to be thrown into the rubbish bin. Just get rid of it. Put on the new self, new every morning, because it has to be new every morning. And Paul is talking to you as Christians. At your salvation, you were given a whole new wardrobe which, like manna, is new every morning. It's brand new, brand fresh, every day. It gets washed for you. You don't have to do it. And your old clothes were thrown into that rubbish bin. Leave them there. But it doesn't mean that you can't occasionally, sometimes absentmindedly or sometimes consciously, dig through the rubbish bin to pull out that really comfy old sweater, the one with the grease stains that your spouse doesn't want you to wear anymore, but it's just really comfortable. Plus, you're only going to be painting anyway, and it doesn't really matter. And it's a... You're smiling. If you can understand that with clothing, do you understand how we do that with other things? It's to Christians in Rome that Paul wrote, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Don't be conformed. Don't let the, the world pound you into its shape with every tap of the hammer, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind, metamorphosized from the inside out, like a butterfly realizing, wait a minute, I'm not a caterpillar anymore. Therefore, each of you, he says here in Ephesians, choose not to be conformed, choose to be metamorphosized, choose to get rid of this, choose to put on the new self. Oh, I need to get new clothes? You have new clothes. You don't need to get new clothes. At salvation, you were handed new clothes. Put those on. 
Therefore, each of you must put off. You can't put on new clothes without taking the old clothes off. You look funny. And it's remarkably uncomfortable. Do not layer. Don't do that. Take off your old clothes. Put on the new clothes. Put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For all members of one body. Ooh, interesting. See how the application in the second half of the book is based on the theology of the first half of the book? Are you part of one body? Yes. Then how could you lie to one another? Because you're all part of one body, right? Yeah. Remember that first half of the book where we're like, that is so, it's warmed the cockles of my heart. Right. And how do you live that out? Because you have to if this means anything. If this is true, this is what you do. Get rid of all that stuff. Which suggests that if we disregard the unity arguments of the first half of the book, then you're probably not going to win the fight that you're supposed to be fighting in the second half of the book. Right? If the applications of the second half of the book are based on the arguments of the first half of the book, then if we go, yeah, I can do this on my own. I can do this without her. He's messed up. I never liked her. Then you're probably going to screw up the second half of the book. And let's be brutally honest. Isn't that part of why we lost the culture war? Because we got so busy fighting against one another and fighting this person and that structure and fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting against that guy or that thought process instead of fighting on behalf of people who are so broken and so hard-hearted that they actually shoot at the people trying to save them. Used to be a lifeguard, and they taught us that when people are drowning, they get desperate and they start to flail. And they, if you're not careful, they'll pull you under. So as you're reaching out to them, you have to stop and think about: they're going to attack me, and it's not going to be malicious. They're just—they're—they're they're desperate, and they don't even realize that you're trying to help them. In fact, we're told in First Corinthians, Paul says, "If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall." And as you're reaching out to people, be careful that you don't fall victim to the exact same things that they're struggling with. The world is going to attack us. I'm like, yeah. That's why they need us reaching out to them. That's why we need to be reaching out to them because they're flailing. But he flailed at me. Right, because he's drowning. That's why you're reaching out to him. And somebody smacks at you as they're drowning. Do you shove their head under? In your anger, don't sin, Paul says, quoting from the Psalms. Don't do that. You can be angry, but do it in a healthy way. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. You're supposed to be living this genuine, complete put-up-withness, right? Because remember, that's from the first half of the book. If you're, if you're living this genuine put-up-withness and speaking truthfully and lovingly to one another, that's from the first half of the book. Holding on to anger rarely helps with that, does it? And I, I, I struggle with that. I struggle with responding with a, to a snippy comment with a snippy comment. I, I struggle with that. Struggle with that today. I struggle. But I love the practical little piece of advice that it gives us about how to win that fight. Not the fight against your husband. Not the fight against your, your friend. That fight against your anger, against your sin, against the, the greasy shirt that you shouldn't have been wearing in the first place. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't sleep on it. Because if you sleep on it, it absolutely will change in the morning. It'll feel differently in the light of day. People go, yeah, I mean, I'll just let the emotion go off. Oh, it doesn't go away. It just morphs. 
that bloody anger congeals. In the morning, it's, it's this goo, and if you don't deal with it, it festers and it infects and it becomes gangrenous and it starts infecting the rest of your body and the rest of your relationship because it wasn't worth fighting about. Then don't fight. Talk. Engage. Argue healthily. And don't let it just fester. You're right. It's not worth fighting about. Then don't fight. But that infection will take more and more until you finally go, I'm going to have to just chop this arm off. Until you realize that it's normal in a relationship to be that festered. It's normal in your interactions with people to be that infected. It's normal. Because the farther off track you get, the more it seems normal to be off track, right? Maybe your fleshly feelings are not the best roadmap to a healthy life. Maybe. Maybe you should deal with things, disputes and conflicts in a healthy, quick, concise matter that follows biblical suggestions before it all festers, maybe. Before you give the devil a foothold in your life. Because once you give the devil a foothold here or there, why would he stop here or there, would he? Once you've justified wearing this greasy sweatshirt, if, I mean, if you're painting, or if you're only going to be home all day, or if you're sick, or if you are just walking the dog, or once you start justifying that here, can't it be comfortable elsewhere and other things? And After a while, you've pulled half the shirts out of the rubbish bin, haven't you? and justify why it's okay to wear them. In your anger, don't sin, he says. He, who, he who's stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his hands so that he can have something to share with others in need. And I love that parallel. You used to steal for yourself, right? But you need to work, you go, right, so that you can meet your needs. No! You need to work so that you can meet his needs. You stole so that you can meet your needs. Now you need to work to meet his needs. It's not just about not stealing, but about being other-oriented in stuff. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs that may benefit those who listen. Not just a watch-your-words sort of thing, but be other-oriented in your words. Do you, do, you see the, do you see the argument here? It's not just about stuff or about words. It's going, wait. Am I doing this because myself is on the throne of my life or am I doing what I'm doing because I'm trying to meet other people's needs? Am I trying to be there for them? Because it's so easy for me to go, I am bitter forever because of... But I struggle to see how my being bitter helps those around me and meets their needs. And if that's Paul's argument, I struggle to see how I should keep doing that. In fact, I love the word unwholesome here. I don't know, it's got a different scripture, a different, or a different translation. The word actually means rotting, festered, corrupt. Your old life was corrupt, now your, your words are corrupt. Don't let your selfish anger fester, it's going to corrupt your soul. Don't let your, your words that are festering corrupt those around you. Don't do that, it's infectious. Your negativity, your hate, your bitterness, your ah is infectious. Think about how many snide remarks, how many flippant comments, how many complaints, how many little 
throw away little snide little things that you toss out on a daily basis or respond to on a daily basis. How many things that are, they were funny. You know, just, I mean, toxic, but not terrible. Is that what honors Christ? Did that help? Whom did that help? Does that bring unity? Who did that bring together? Does that build up the body of Christ? Because I think we're all supposed to be building the building up together. It's not just destructive, it's toxic. It's ignoring the first half of the book and still hoping to do the second half of the book. Don't do that, Paul says. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. But then he doesn't tell us what to do. He's like, don't do these things and then don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And I've read, I've read so many different things. I've heard different sermons where people are like, and what does he mean by that? Well, we can go to other scriptures and we can figure out what grieves the Holy Spirit. Because he doesn't explain here what grieves the Holy Spirit. You know, he just says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this practical thing, and then don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And we're like, could you explain that to me? <laughs> Wait, didn't he already do that? Isn't that what he's just been talking about? All this stuff that... It's like, how about this? Pulling the rotted, old, greasy clothes back out of the rubbish bin and going, I prefer these. I'm going to live this way. Christ died to bring me to this. The Holy Spirit is working in me to make me set apart every day. But this is comfy. Isn't that grieving to the Holy Spirit? Contextual, I'm pretty sure that's what he's getting at. He's like, don't do that. It's not just bad form. It's not just, well, that's not a good idea. It's the Holy Spirit going, that's the antithesis of what I'm trying to do every day in your life. You goomba, what are you doing? I'm working to to throw all this stuff into the rubbish bin and leave it there. So Paul says, take off your old self, put on your new self, then throw out the old clothes so that you can love one another appropriately anew. Get rid, throw off, remove the old clothes. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander, along with every form of malice, any part of you that justifies any part of that old, angry, bitter, spiteful, frustrated, malicious, biting, negative, futile, falderall. Don't do that. Get rid of that. And don't pull it back out of the rubbish bin. Don't do that. Instead, put on. Be kind. Be compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And for those that were looking for gentle being soft and loving and mild, that's not what gentle means. It is kind of what kind means. Have some kindness. Have some some warmth. Be mild with one another. And forgive. I had an excellent conversation with somebody this week where we agreed that forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean that you restore the prior relationship. It just means everything that you did that hurt me, I'm releasing back and going, I I forgive you. I do not hold you accountable to it in my life. I choose no longer to remember that. And I'm moving on. I hold no malice towards you. That's over. If I were to continue being hurt, being frustrated, I remember what, then the only person abusing me now is me. 
so I'm letting that go because Christ forgave me. Jesus forgave you and me far more than we have ever had to forgive anyone in our lives. And yet, like the servant who'd been forgiven much, we struggle sometimes to forgive a little in other people. But he says, be mild with one another, not harsh. Be tender-hearted, not hard-hearted like the world is. Warmer hearts, thicker skins, because Christ bled out for you, and he also bled out for them. Because he loves you, and he loves them. He loves all of us broken people. Be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Isn't that the crux of it? Just do that. You've been creating the image of God. You've been given this new nature, this new self, this new name, this new wardrobe. So reflect that. Wear that. Throw out the old stuff. Do that. Among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Or any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. All the stuff that the world says is cool, is cool. And you only become cool if, instead of being a prude, you do what we do. Put those guys on the cover, because they're cool. Do that. The world revels in that more and more. But don't justify doing what they're doing. Instead, be thankful that this is not our life anymore. We have a new nature. We have a new self. We have a new name. We have a new kingdom. We have a new wardrobe. For of this you can be sure, Paul says. And we'll get to that next week. Because he's like, here, this is where this is going. But in the meantime... How do we live out this week? How do we say, Lord, what am I looking at in my life? How do I live this out in a way that I remind myself? I have a new wardrobe. I have a new self. I have a new name. I have a new family. I have a new kingdom. I have a new job. I have a new everything. This world is familiar. It doesn't make it home. And when I reflect this world because it's cute or it's fun or it's cool or it's familiar, I'm doing a disservice not just to myself but to all those people I'm trying to reach out to and to the Holy Spirit who is sanctifying me and to the blood of Christ shed on the cross for me. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. But the good news is it was never our job to make everybody else do the right thing. It's our job to say, there's a new wardrobe and a new name and a new nature and a new kingdom and a new family and it can be yours. And if you kick me in the shins, then you are exactly the person that needs to hear this. Because there's only two people in the world, right? Two kinds. Those who are your brother and sister in Christ and those who you would really like to be pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you that it's more than just us dealing with us doing our thing to accomplish our thing. That's what the world thinks. Lord, I pray, help us to have your passion in your heart to reach those who are your passion, to bring them to your heart. Work in us, Lord, to echo you and reflect you, not this place. In Jesus' name, amen.